Well, before we jump into Genesis, uh, let me take a second while I assume the most eyes are on me and paying attention to uh, repeat one of the announcements that Seth made earlier today. Uh, and that is, uh, I want to ask you to please make plans, particularly if you're a member of uh, the congregation, please make plans to come back tonight at 6 p.m. Uh, to be part of the meeting that we're having uh, with the architects to talk about uh, our new uh, building uh, proposals. Um, I think the typical and perhaps the easiest way for a church to do this is for the leadership to decide that it's a good idea and then spend the next six months pleading with the congregation to uh, get on board with it. And by that, I mean probably finance it. Uh, but that's not a great fit for our understanding of what a church should be like and how a church should function and what a church family is. Uh, we, we feel like this is a decision about um, our future together as a church, and we need to make it together. As we think about whether or not we ought to build a larger building, uh, we need to make that, that decision together, prayerfully seeking the Lord together uh, for guidance and direction. And I realize that puts a burden on you, in this case, coming back tonight to see the plans that the architect has uh, drawn up. It puts a burden on you to commit yourself to prayer and conversation, but, but I think I'm convinced, the other elders are convinced, hopefully you're convinced as well, uh, that this is the best way for us to make a decision. Uh, and so I'm asking you to do just that starting tonight, 6 p.m., right here uh, in the main hall. Okay, so end of the uh, extended announcements. Uh, the book of Genesis uh, is a long book. It is 50 chapters, in fact. Uh, and we have been in it for quite some time. Uh, it is a long book, but it breaks down fairly clearly into sections. Uh, there are pretty clear movements that the, uh, the author of Genesis, Moses, uh, that he sort of indicates by the, the use of certain language and, and certain repeated phrases. Uh, Genesis begins with the record of Adam, the first human being. Uh, we read about his immediate descendants there in the first five chapters. In chapter six, we see a man named Noah comes onto the scene. We see the flood and its aftermath in the following chapters. In chapter 12, we're introduced to a man named Abram and the covenant that God makes with him to bless him, to make him a great nation, to give him the land of Canaan, and ultimately to bless all nations through him. In chapters 25 to 28, we see Isaac, the child that's been promised to Abraham by the Lord. He, he comes to the fore. And as we see more recently, uh, Jacob, Isaac's second son, has, has become the focus of the narrative. Uh, and this morning, we're going to see our author tip us off that Jacob's time on the stage is coming to a close. He's not going to die until the very uh, end of chapter 49. But from this point on, after this week's passage, Jacob is clearly no longer the focus of the attention. Instead, what we'll see beginning next week, Lord willing, is that Joseph, Jacob's favorite son by his favorite wife, is going to be the focus of the narrative the rest of the way. And so our passage for this morning is really bringing together summing up for us, concluding the, the main narrative of Jacob's up and down, back and forth life and his walk with the Lord. So if you, if you look there in Genesis, starting in chapter 35, uh, if you have a Bible, I think you'll really be helped to have it open in front of you. It's going to cover a lot of ground. We won't read every verse, but hopefully I'll be able to refer to where we are in the text and you'll be helped to be able to see it. Uh, if you look there in really from chapter 35, verse 16, all the way through chapter 37, verse 1, our passage for this morning, we, we get a lot of housekeeping. We get information that, 
that clears the previous generation, Isaac and Rebekah, from the scene. Uh, we also see Jacob's brother Esau uh, cleared away from the scene. And that allows us to really focus on Jacob and his family the rest of the way. So uh, first, before we get there, before we start removing characters from our narrative, we've got one more addition that needs to be made. So if you look in chapter 35, uh, verses 17 to 19, really starting in verse 16. So Genesis 35, starting in verse 16. It says there that they journeyed from Bethel, And when they were still some distance from Ephra, Rachel went into labor, and she had a hard labor. So we find out here that Rachel is pregnant. And if you remember just how much she, as Jacob's favorite, wanted to have a child. And you remember perhaps how after many years of barrenness, the Lord remembered her and took pity on her and gave her a son, Joseph. And so now she's pregnant again which we didn't know about. We're just told that she's in labor, which I assume means she got pregnant, right? And that's great, and we're happy for her. But we read there that it was a hard labor. And tragically, perhaps a bit ironically, the very thing that she wanted so much turns out to be the thing that kills her. And she dies, giving birth to a baby boy. She names him, as she's dying, Ben-Oni, there in verse 18. And that means son of my sorrow. Uh, Jacob, in an unusual display of good parenting instincts, chooses to not call him that, but call him Ben-Yamin, or what we would say Benjamin, son of the right hand. And so Benjamin then becomes the last of Jacob's children. Now we have 12 sons and at least one daughter, Dinah, who's going to factor into the story as we come back in uh, chapter 34 a bit later this morning. We see that the The sons of Jacob are listed out for us, beginning in the second half of uh, verse 22 in chapter 35. It says, now the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob that were born to him in Padan Aram. So in the big picture, this is really significant because these are the the sons who will become the heads and the namesakes of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. Uh, It shows us that the Lord has been faithful to keep his promise. He has made a great nation of Abraham through his son Isaac through Isaac's sons, Jacob. So Jacob's family is complete. And turning to the previous generation, Jacob's parents, we get some interesting information there in chapter 35, verse 8. Uh, we read there, it says, And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. And so he called its name Alon Bakuth. Now, there was a, a brief mention of Rebecca having a nurse, maybe think we would call it like a nanny, someone to take care of the kids, uh, back in chapter 24, verse 59, but we weren't told her name. But now we see this woman whose name was Rebecca has been with Jacob all this time. And the way that her death is recorded makes it clear that she was beloved. Uh, She's buried under an oak. That was an honor reserved for someone who was worthy of remembrance. The name Jacob uses there, 
uh, to call the place means oak of weeping. It seems like this woman was like a mother to Jacob. In fact, it's probably significant that we're never told about Rebecca's death. The only information we get about her comes in chapter 49 when we read that she was buried in the same cave as the other patriarchs and their wives. And that could be a comment on her her actions. Remember, last time we saw Rebecca, she was deceiving her husband uh, in order to help Jacob steal his brother's blessing back in 27, chapter 27. After that, Rebecca completely disappears from the narrative. We're not told about her death. We're only told that her, her nanny, her nurse, was given an honorable burial. There in chapter 5, if you look at verses 27 to 29, uh, we read then about the death of Isaac. It says, And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Now, if you remember back in chapter 27, uh, events that took place decades ago, Isaac was acting like he was on his deathbed. But apparently he wasn't quite as close to the end as he thought because he hung in for quite some time. But his death here marks the end of this section of Genesis. As I mentioned, starting next week, we're going to see a new generation with Joseph taking center stage with Jacob off the wings. And what we see is that the death of Isaac here is reported to us in a way that's very, very familiar. It's similar to the way that we read about the, where we were told about the death of Isaac's father, Abraham. So back in chapter 5, we read that Abraham died and that his sons, Isaac, the son of promise, and Ishmael, the the son that was not chosen, they came together and buried him. And then we, immediately after that, after being told about Abraham's death, uh, we get a record of Ishmael's descendants. And then we move on to read about the story of Isaac. So here in chapter 35 now, we read that Isaac died. And that his two sons, Jacob, the son of promise, and Esau, the son that was not chosen, come together to bury him. And then in chapter 36, we get a record of Esau's descendants. Uh, we won't go into too much detail here about these descendants, but a couple of things to notice there that we're told in chapter 36. Uh, there in verses 6 to 8, we read that Esau left Jacob and that he went off away from the, the land uh, into Canaan. Right? It seemed that both, the, they seemed like the land couldn't support the, the families and the livestock of both Esau and Jacob. It reminds us of the way that Lot and Abraham parted company back in chapter 13. But here we're being shown in verses 6 to 8 that Esau is still a worldly-minded man. He makes his choices based not on the promises that God had made to his family to give a certain part of the land to them, uh, but rather he makes his decisions, it seems, purely on sort of material grounds. He's not concerned about dwelling with God's people in the land of promise. He's content to go out and live amongst the Canaanites if it means better prospects for his business. It seems like it's the wealth that matters most to him. He's not concerned with the spiritual well-being of his family. In that way, perhaps Esau is the patron saint of Northern Virginia, right? Where we sacrifice anything in order to have a better career or a bigger house or more opportunities for advancement. It's very rare that someone would sacrifice anything or give any thought to the, the spiritual consequences of a decision so long as that decision results in more money 
or a better job title or a bigger house. But I think we're meant to see a contrast here between Esau, who, who chooses purely on sort of material grounds to, to leave the promised land, and what we see in chapter 37, verse 1, where uh, we're told about Jacob. It says there, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. So one son, the son of promise, lives in the land of his fathers. The other chooses to go out, uh, showing that he's not the one who will receive God's blessing. It seems like the other really important data point we get here in chapter 36 is that we're shown that this is the origin of the nation of Edom. Uh, Edom uh, simply means red in the Hebrew language. If you remember back in chapter 35, we read that at his birth, Esau came out and he was red all over. And so as the Old Testament moves on, you have these two nations that have been established. You have Israel, the descendants of Jacob, and you have Edom, the descendants of Esau as described for us here in chapter 36. Uh, these were nations that ought to have treated each other well. They should have been cousins. They were family. And that becomes very significant in the book of Numbers. When Moses and the Israelites are on their way out of Egypt, they're, they're heading towards the promised land, and they ask uh, the people of Edom for permission to cut through their land so they don't have to take a long, arduous path around Edom. They tell them, look, we're going to stay on the main road. We won't take anything, right? If we need water, we'll pay for it. We don't want to bother you. We just want to cut across, right? We're, we're family, remember. Uh, you'd think it'd be a simple request. It's just the extension of courtesy to kinsmen. But we read in Numbers 20 that the king of Edom refused and forced the people of Israel into a, a difficult wilderness path. And from that point on, pretty much every time we see the nation of Edom mentioned, they are shown to be idol worshipers who are opposing God's people. So as the Old Testament progresses on, Edom becomes synonymous with contempt for God, contempt for his promises and his people. You may know there's an entire book of the Bible devoted to a prophecy of judgment against Edom, the book of Obadiah. In Isaiah 63, the prophet sees a vision of the future coming Messiah returning from Edom, from Basra, its capital city, with his garments stained with the blood of God's enemies. So the account here in chapter 36 tells us that this, how this nation was established. And it prepares us for this storyline that we follow throughout the Old Testament. Okay, now with all that housekeeping out of the way... We, we find out what happens to, to Isaac. We find out what happens to Esau. We're not going to see them anymore in our story. We're prepared, I think, to take on the two sort of major final events in Jacob's story. Uh, there in chapter 34, we read about a traumatic family crisis. And then in chapter 35, we read about a final encounter that Jacob has with the Lord. And so let's look at those two things with the rest of the time that we have this morning. Uh, starting there in chapter 34 then with this family crisis. When we left Jacob last week, he had built a house for himself in Succoth. In chapter 33, verses 18 to 20, we read that he came and he dwelt in Shechem, that he bought some land there, and he set up his family and began to erect an altar to the Lord there. But in the first few verses of chapter 34, we read about a despicable act that unleashes a tidal wave of violence. So we read there in chapter 34, verse 1. It says, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. 
And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. So I'm going to try and be circumspect as I speak about this, but we have this horrible assault, this act of violence against an innocent person as Shechem, the prince of the land, attacks Jacob's only daughter, or at least the only daughter that we know about. And shockingly, there in verse 3, we read that, she, that he fell in love with his victim, that his soul was perversely drawn to her. And so he tried to speak tenderly to her as if that would make up for what he had done. Now, all the evidence points to the idea that this was a fairly common practice amongst the Canaanite people. Uh, in many ways, sexual violence and immorality was their calling card. Uh, we'll see, Lord willing, in chapter 38 that prostitution was a normal part of their worship of false gods. And they don't actually seem to be all that shocked by these events. In fact, the only thing that seems remarkable from the, the Shechemite perspective is that the perpetrator actually fell in love with his victim. As we see there in verse 4, he went to his father and he insists that he get him Dinah to be his wife, as if she's nothing more than an animal whose purchase can be negotiated. There in verse 5, Jacob hears what has happened, uh, but we read significantly that all of his sons were out in the fields tending the livestock. And uh, Jacob's reaction is perhaps shocking there in verse 5. It says, Jacob held his peace. So he finds out about this terrible thing that happens to his daughter, and he holds his peace. The sons come back from tending the fields, and, and there in verse 7, we find out that they were indignant and very angry when they found out what had happened. Right? This might have been normal behavior for the Canaanites, but, but there in verse 7, they say that this is an outrageous thing. There at the end of verse 7, such a thing must not be done. But Hamor, in verse 6, Shechem's father comes to Jacob to negotiate. He wants to talk father to father to see if this can be cleared up, to see if they can make arrangements for a marriage. There in verses 8 to 12, Hamor makes his pitch. We read there. It says, but Hamor spoke with them saying, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask for me as great a bride price and gift as you will. And I will give you whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. Now, Look at what Hamor is offering to Jacob and his sons. He's saying, make marriages with us. Give us your daughters and take ours as well. Right? He's promising him family. He's offering him children, offspring. He says, dwell with us. The land will be open to you. He's offering them a place to live. He says, trade. Get property in it. 
Right? He's promising him great blessing. Right? Can you see that this is a sort of diabolical mimicking of the promise that God had given them? Right? God had promised them all these things. And he told them to remain distinct from the people of the land. He said, I'll be the one who gives you offspring. I'll be the one who gives you the land. I'll be the one who gives you great blessing. Right? But we see this is something of Satan's favorite move. Right? From the temptation of Eve to the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Satan is always tempting God's people to take hold of what God has already promised to give them just without having to exercise faith in his promises, without having to be obedient. So here Israel's being offered a counterfeit of God's covenant promise. They're being offered all of the blessings without the Lord. Thankfully, the sons of Jacob have no interest in their offer, not because they were particularly holy or faithful, but they were angry. And so instead of seeking after justice, instead of dealing with the crime in a way that was proportional and right, they choose to pursue revenge. They answer Shechem and Hamor deceitfully, it says there in verse 13. And we read their, their words beginning in verse 14. It says, they said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you. That you, will become, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. You see, they use the truth to deceive. It is true that it would be a disgrace for them and for their daughter to marry one who was uncircumcised. Remember, circumcision was the sign given by God to Abraham to, to signify the covenant that God had made. It was a, a physical act that marked off a child as belonging to the covenant people. Circumcision was a sign of blessing, a sign of God's favor. It wasn't something that could just be offered to outsiders, people who had no interest in the Lord or being part of his people. It certainly wasn't meant to be part of a plan to slaughter. But here they lie, telling Hamor and his son that they'll be happy to intermarry with them so long as the men of the town are willing to be circumcised. There in verses 18 to 24, we read that the greed and the lust of the Shechemites took over and they agree to the sort of highly irregular terms that were laid out by Jacob's sons. It says there, their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem and the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city saying, these men are at peace with us. Maybe a better translation would be, these are peaceful people. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us and become one people when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out to the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. 
So Hamor and his people, the Shechemites, are really not sympathetic characters. Right, besides this terrible assault, you can see they're, they're expecting to take advantage of the people of Israel. There in verse 21, they mistake them for peaceful people. There in verse 23, they expect that everything that Israel has, all the blessings that God has given to them, will become theirs. And so it seems like they think they're going to sort of get over on these rich, peaceful rubes. But what they get is something terrible. They go ahead with the circumcision, and we read there in verse 25. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. So Simeon and Levi, who were both uh, sons of Leah, so they were full brothers to Dinah, they take their revenge. They fall upon the citizens, they slaughter all the males, they take the wives and the children and all their possessions as plunder. It's an ugly picture. The, the sons of Jacob turned into liars and murderers. But it was right that they were outraged by what was done to their sister. But their response is vindictive and full of rage. They don't seem to give any thought to proportion or justice. So certainly Shechem should be made to pay for his assault. If you want to argue even that such a heinous crime uh, means that he ought to forfeit his life, you could make a case for that. But the idea that every man in the city ought to die, that all of the women should be widowed, that the children should be carried off from their homes without any sort of specific or special warrant from the Lord or from his law, that's a terrible crime. And we read there about the conclusion of the matter in verses 30 to 31. It says, Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Somehow this story just got even more depressing. Right, Jacob hears about what his sons have done. And his main concern is not that they're liars, not that they used the sign of God's covenant as a weapon of their vengeance, not that they're probably guilty of small-scale genocide. What he's really mad about is that this is going to ruin his reputation, that his neighbors now will think less of him and perhaps even attack him. Right? He's worried. He's afraid that this, this action will precipitate an attack. I think we're meant to see a rebuke of Jacob's fear and his, his attitude in chapter 35. We, we read there that his family travels through hostile territory to get to Bethel, and we read there in Genesis 35, 5, as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Right? Jacob can only worry about what the neighbors will think, but the Lord has already taken care of their protection. In fact, what we're seeing in many ways is the chickens of Jacob's terrible family leadership finally coming home to roost. 
this passage clearly does not condone hyper-aggression, right? The actions of people like Shechem and Levi and Simeon are all, I think, clearly condemned by the text. But, but neither does it commend for us passivity and fear. Right here, Jacob is confronted with a horrible act of violence against his daughter, and we're told that he holds his peace. Right? That's not a time to hold your peace. That's a time for action, a time for swift, precise justice. And predictably, the vacuum left by his inaction is filled with something terrible. His sons fill the gap with violence and slaughter. You see, even in the way the story is told, that Jacob's passivity costs him his son's respect. There in verse 6, Hamor comes to talk to Jacob about marriage prospects. But when the sons come back from the field in verse 7, they're the ones who take over negotiations. It's as if they push their father to the side. In verse 8, Hamor talks to them, not to Jacob. In verse 11, Shechem talks to Jacob and his sons. But in verse 13, it's only the sons who answer. There in verse 31, Jacob complains about what they've done. And they just seem to dismiss his objections completely, asking whether he'd prefer that they just allow Shechem to treat their sister like a prostitute, as if the only options are to do nothing or kill everyone. It's not too hard to understand why they don't think much of their father. After all, he openly preferred another woman to their mother. He clearly favored their younger half-brother over them to the point of putting them in danger in last week's passage in order to protect Rachel and Joseph. But this lack of respect, this loss of control over his family, it just keeps getting worse from this point on. In the next chapter, in chapter 35, verse 22, we read this little note dropped sort of randomly in the midst of the narrative. It says, while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel, that is Jacob, heard of it. Reuben was Jacob's firstborn. And again, he was one of Leah's sons. They seem to have held a particular grudge against their father. He's the full brother of Dinah and Simeon and Levi, of course. And it seems like this taking of one of his father's wives was an act of defiance, a way of establishing himself as the, the leader of the family. And of course, all of this is going to come to a head next week in our passage where we see that uh, Jacob's sons sell Jacob's favorite son into slavery. And then they lie to their father about it. There are going to be consequences for all of this, as we'll see in chapter 49, Lord willing. At the end of his life, Jacob gathered the children around him, his sons and daughter, and he, he speaks to them about the future. And we see that he's got the events from our chapter on his mind, or our passage from this morning. And we read there, if we can peek ahead in Genesis 49. It says, Jacob called his sons and said, gather yourselves together that I might tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. And listen to what he's thinking about here as he dies. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstborn of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. It seems like he's clearly thinking about the slaughter of the Shechemites. Let my soul come not into their counsel. Oh, my glory be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men. And in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed 
be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So in the bigger picture, chapter 34, it shows us some really important developments. We see a family that's coming apart at the seams in ways that are going to require miraculous intervention. And that means we're now prepared for the, the Joseph narrative that closes the book. We see the temptation of God's people as they are offered everything the world can offer. If only they will compromise their distinct character and join up and become one with the world. Israel refuses, however. We see the Lord protects them from their enemies. And I think we also see a sobering warning for people in positions of leadership. There are times when patience is the right move. We might even say that patience is normally the wisest course of action. But there are times when leadership demands decisive action. And a failure of leadership in those situations often brings terrible consequences. That brings us to the last major event in our passage. It's recorded for us there at the beginning of chapter 35, really in the first half. And in order to understand what's going on here, uh, you have to remember what we saw back in chapter 28. There we read that Jacob was traveling alone. He was fleeing from his brother who wanted to kill him. Uh, He was by himself, and he went to sleep, and he had a dream. And in his dream, he saw a flight of stairs extending from earth to heaven with angels of the Lord ascending and descending on those stairs. And in that dream, God uh, reiterated to him the great promise that he had made to Abraham and to Isaac. He told Jacob that as he fled from Esau, the Lord would be with him. And the Lord promised to bring him back to that land. So Jacob, in chapter 28, he woke up, and and we read this. Uh, It says in, in Genesis 28, verses 18 to 22, Early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow, this is important, saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And all that you give me, of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So we've seen over the past few chapters that God has, in fact, done everything that he promised to do for Jacob. And so now it's time for Jacob to make good on the vow that he made in, verse 20, or in chapter 28. So we read in chapter 35, verse 1, God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. The Lord very kindly reminds Jacob, hey, remember that vow you made? Remember the promise you made? There in verses 6 to 7, we see that Jacob did exactly that. He built an altar to the Lord at Bethel. And that brings about the interaction that really represents the last major movement in Jacob's life. So he'll be on, as I said, on the scene all the way through the rest of Genesis in different ways. But, but from this point on, it's really the story of his children. It's the way that God preserves his promise through Joseph. But look there in verses 9 to 12 of chapter 35. It says, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. 
The land that I give to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. Now, if you remember back to Genesis 17, we saw God make the very same promises to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. Here we see those promises reaffirmed and continued. Specifically, there are four things that we read about here in chapter 35 that recalls what we saw back in chapter 17. There's a name change. In chapter 17, it's Abram to Abraham. Here, it's a name change from Jacob to Israel. There's a promise that kings will come from the line of this family. There's a reference to being fruitful. There's a promise that a multitude of nations will come from Abraham and Jacob. And so the message is clear. God Almighty will be with him and will bring to pass all of the promises that he has made to Abraham through Jacob's family. And as the story of redemption rolls on, we do see that great kings, in fact, come from Jacob's line. If we had more time, we could go into chapter 36. I, I think we're meant to read the descendants of Esau in light of this promise. Uh, we, we're meant to see that the sort of the little petty sort of tribal feudal lords that arise out of Esau are nothing compared to the kings of Israel uh, that come from Jacob's line. We see, of course, that the Lord Jesus, the king of kings, descends from this line of Jacob. And we do see that God makes him fruitful multiplying his descendants, making him into a great company of nations. Again, as the story of redemption continues on, it becomes clear that God is actually talking about far more than Jacob could ever imagine. Right? When, when God promises here in chapter 35 to make him a company of nations, the Hebrew word that he uses is, is kahal. It means congregation or assembly. And significantly, that's a word that's used to describe the gathering of the nation of Israel uh, around Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, when they flee from Pharaoh, when they're delivered from slavery, and they come together. The, the, the author there uses this same word, that there's a kahal, an assembly, a congregation of God's people. So I think it's a promise that we're meant to see that finds its ultimate fulfillment in Revelation where we read, for example, in chapter 7, that John has a vision of what's going on even right now in the heavenly realms. In Revelation 7, verse 9, we read, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see, God has brought a great assembly, a great congregation of nations from Jacob's line, people who are not necessarily related to him any longer by blood descent, but people who have been brought into God's family by the sacrificial death of Jesus, that great king of kings who came from Jacob's line. Brothers and sisters, in a very real way, we are part of the fulfillment of God's promise to Jacob here in chapter 35. When we gather to worship, when we come to the Lord's table, we are evidence that God Almighty has in fact been faithful to do exactly what he said he would do, and even far more than Jacob could have thought. But as we conclude this morning, I just want to focus briefly on what happens there in chapter 35 in verses 2 to 4. Because as we've seen, these promises that God makes to Jacob, they're not particularly new. Jacob has heard them before. His father had heard them. His grandfather had heard them. 
What seems to be the really significant development here in chapter 35 is something that Jacob does in preparation to meet with God at Bethel. As he prepares to set up this altar for worship, he realizes that there are some things in his life and in the life of his family that do need to change. Look there, starting in verse 2. It says, So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. As we've seen all along, Jacob seems to have had an up-and-down relationship with the God of his father and grandfather. The Lord appeared to him, as we mentioned, back at Bethel in chapter 28. We saw Jacob wrestle all through the night with the Lord's messenger back in chapter 32. And I think we could describe Jacob's general posture towards the Lord as half-hearted. He's tried, whenever possible, to get by on his wits, on his schemes, on his plans, And he's tolerated the household gods, the the little idols, the good luck charms that his wife brought back from Laban's household. But now as he prepares to worship the Lord at Bethel, it's got to end. In that all-night wrestling match that we considered last week, we saw that God broke Jacob. And he gave him this new name, Israel, as a blessing. But now it's time to live it out. And that means that everything has to go. The foreign gods, those household idols, the the earrings that seem like they were little sort of magical charms or good luck charms, they all have to go. Up until this point, it seems like Jacob's approach has been the Lord plus. Yes, the Lord had helped him, but it, it couldn't hurt to keep the idols around. Right, it could only help if those earrings bring some good fortune. But it seems here that Jacob's come to grips with what it means that God is the Almighty. He is 100%. Every other so-called God is nothing. Jacob realizes there that the Lord is the God, he says, who answers him in the day of his distress. God is the one who's been with him wherever he has gone, just as he promised. And so he buries the idols. He hides them in a place where they can't be found. Again, it seems significant that the the idols of the nations, their gods, are things that can be hidden in the ground. They're things that can be sort of hidden under under a saddle, we saw in a previous passage. Right? Jacob's making it clear. He's done. His family is done. He tells them to purify themselves, to put on clean clothes, to get ready to worship God at Bethel. And so, brothers and sisters, I think there's a picture there for us, a reminder that being part of God's family means that we must live with wholehearted devotion to him. I imagine we're not tempted to go out and dabble in other religions this week, not self-consciously. My guess is that we're not tempted to worship little statues, but I do think that we are, like Jacob, tempted to hedge our bets that we're tempted to diversify our portfolio of things that we look to to make our lives meaningful and enjoyable and pleasurable. We want Jesus, yes, 
but it's Jesus plus. If I have Jesus and my job, if I have Jesus plus my nice car and house, if I have Jesus plus my kids being successful and well-adjusted, if I have Jesus plus the, the pleasure of some secret cherished sin, but friends, as we see here in our passage for this morning, as we were reminded from Mark chapter 12 earlier in our service, we must love the Lord with all we have, all our heart, all our mind, all our strength. Right? Some of those other things are good. And they can, in fact, be occasions of joy and blessing when we receive them in the context of our worship of the Lord. But if we try to keep them quarantined off in a separate space where we worship the Lord over here, but we keep these things hidden for ourselves, right? If we're, if we're investing some of our hope in them, if we're looking at them to make our lives in some way meaningful, then, then we're not really worshiping the Lord at all. Friends, the call to come to the Lord's table, to come and worship him, to come commune with him, to come, to come before the God who has revealed himself to us in Christ, it's a call to wholehearted love. It's a call to self-consciously put aside everything else that's competing for your love and attention and hope and worship. To, as it were, to bury it in a place where you can't find it. And listen, if that sounds like bad news to you, like if that sounds like, like drudgery or a chore, if it seems like God is robbing you somehow by demanding your wholehearted allegiance, right, that means you just don't get it. Right? Remember what we read earlier, what, what Marty read for us from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Right, when, you're, when your kids ask you, what's with all these rules, Dad? What are you supposed to say? Yeah, it kind of stinks. It'd be great to do all those things that the Canaanites got to do, but this is what it takes to be right with God, and he's kind of big and scary, so we better get on with it. No, that's not at all what it says. Right, when, when it asks there, what's the deal with all these rules? Let me tell you about what the Lord's done for us. Let, let me tell you about what it was like when we were slaves in Egypt and how he delivered us. And so God's given us instructions. Do you remember what it says there? For our good. Right? He's, he's called us to things because he's a God who blesses us. He's called us to live in a certain way because he wants to load our hands with real treasure. Right? If you've prepared for your children a feast of healthy and delicious food of the highest quality, would it be unkind of you to insist that they not bring a bowl of rat poison to the table? Or if you gave your child a marvelous gift, would it be unreasonable and petty of you to suggest that they, that they love the person who gave it to them more than they love the gift itself? Is it unwise for you to only put high-octane gas in your car rather than fill it up with water? Of course not. When God calls us here to wholehearted love and worship, when he calls us to, to bury the idols that vie for our hope and, and our trust, he's calling us to live the lives we were created to live, to delight ourselves in nothing less than the very best thing, the only thing that can ultimately satisfy us. He's calling us to drop the things that threaten to shrink our souls and leave us hollow and thirsty. 
And so brothers and sisters, God in his, in his wisdom and in his kindness every week has, has set up an opportunity for us to come together to worship, to come to the table, to commune with the God who has delivered us, the God who's been with us everywhere we've gone, who's never failed us in our distress. He's given us this wonderful opportunity to put away whatever sin, whatever love competes for our attention. Let's pray together and let's come to the table. Our loving Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We acknowledge that you alone have been our life and our help and our joy, that you alone are worthy of our love and our worship. Lord Jesus, we praise you. We honor you as our King of Kings, as the one who's purified us and allowed us to come into God's presence by your blood. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would reveal to us the idols in our lives. And we ask even more that you would give us eyes to see how much more beautiful the Lord is than anything we might be tempted to worship. Fill us, Spirit, we pray, with joy and delight. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.